Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. We want to prepare for the upcoming Federal Reserve meeting that takes place this Wednesday. I want to bring in Bob Michael, Chief Investment Officer at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, who's here in the studio with us in Bloomberg 1130. Bob, is this Fed meeting a non-event at this point, even if they raise interest rates by a whole quarter of a percentage point? I think they should make it. They shouldn't make it a non-event. They should make it an event. They should use this as an opportunity to guide us for what they want to do in 2017. Currently, the market thinks they should do one or two tightenings. I think they should do at least four. I think they should go in March. And even if they do four next year, plus one in December, that's one and a quarter total. That only gets you to a Fed funds target rate of one and a half to one and three quarters percent. Why do you think that they should hike four times next year? Because I think policy at a quarter to half a percent, or even if they go in December and four times next year at one and a half to one and three quarters percent, looks out of sync with the evolving economic reality. We talk as though they're already at a zero real Fed funds rate, that they're at two to two and a quarter percent. They're at a quarter to a half a percent. They're at emergency levels, and the emergency isn't there anymore. Okay, you talk about the emergency not being there, but if you are a bondholder and you look at your portfolio, I would imagine that there's a little red light that might be flashing because of all the losses, That, depending upon when you purchased, obviously, your bonds. But I'm just looking at the 30-year for now, 3.18%, uh, the 10-year at almost 2.5%. Uh, when does uh, a trade turn into an investment uh, in the bond <clears throat> market now? I mean, who's holding all that paper that's now underwater? Well, Pim, you're right. It, it's shaping up to be a lousy four years ahead to be a bond investor. That much is for sure. I think when you look at the Fed funds rate relative to 10-year treasuries, there is a pretty good spread now. We've had a pretty dramatic backup. There are going to be investors who think that's far enough for the time being. I'm interested to see if the foreign investors come in and help take down the auctions. Certainly, pension funds have an opportunity to de-risk. You don't go in a straight line up, but I think as the normalization process 
evolves over the next couple of years, there will be buyers of every backup, will second guess. The steepness of the curve is telling me that the Fed is behind the curve, that the market recognizes they need to get to something that looks more neutral. And the longer they drag their feet, the steeper the curve will get and the higher long-term yields will become. So here's what I'm confused about. A lot of people have come on this program and talked about how the effects of President-elect Trump's plans won't really be seen until the beginning of 2018. What's going to sustain this feeling of optimism and growth over the next year, which will inevitably be uh, somewhat contentious, even among Republicans in the, in the U.S. Congress? I mean, is it just the U.S. and, and, and President-elect Trumpers or something else giving you confidence? I think saying that, <clears throat> pardon me, that his plans won't be seeing the impact until 2018 is a load of rubbish. It feels to me as though the Trump administration elect is already running the government. They're in the news every day. They're talking about appointments. When you look about, when you think about Tillerson's candidacy, it seems as though we're in the consultation period and they're taking feedback. I think his first hundred days are going to be breathtaking. I don't think there will be a lag. I expect you will see tax cuts by the end of the first quarter. That will have an immediate impact. This is not a 2018 thing. This is March 2017. And then you're going to start seeing the fiscal spend and maybe the deregulation rolls out into 2018, but they are not dragging their feet. Bob, I just want uh, to uh, have you expand on, on this because not many people have been so forthright in describing what they believe will happen in 2017 with the new administration. And you mentioned news and the control of the news cycle. Do you believe that that is really what is spurring people's attention? Because you've never had a president, for example, a president-elect that is able to command the attention of the news media or the populace directly the way President-elect Donald Trump has? Well, well, certainly he, he's understood the value of social media. I, I think one of the things that, that we're talking about here is a bit of the disconnect of where the market's position, what we expect to happen, and the like. In, in my view, what's happened is there's been a 5% probability that's become a central case scenario. huge mover right now, two movers, CBS and Viacom. CBS down more than 3%, uh, Viacom down more than 6%. This is on news that uh, Sherry Redstone withdrew her proposed merger of CBS Corps and Viacom that ends the potential to create a new colossus in the television industry. With us uh, to find out more is Alex Sherman, Bloomberg News reporter covering all things entertainment and mergers and acquisitions related. Alex, can you explain what happened here? maybe a week or so ago, that things were looking increasingly unlikely that a deal would come together. And the why depends on which side you ask. Um, from Viacom's standpoint, Viacom met with CBS just before Thanksgiving and has been waiting for weeks now to hear back from CBS. Viacom believes that their presentation to CBS was so strong for their standalone plan that CBS started to realize 
we're going to have to pay a pretty big premium if if we want Viacom to go along with this. Uh, and maybe that made a deal more unlikely because CBS didn't see Viacom's prospects as strong as Viacom did. From my CBS sources, the main issue was Les Moonves wanted de facto control over a combined CBS and Viacom company, which would mean he would have to convince Sherry Redstone, uh, Sumner Redstone's daughter, Sumner Redstone owns National Amusements, which controls both companies. Les Moonves would have to convince Sherry to give him her voting shares or at least give him control in some sort of arrangement. Sherry Redstone was unwilling to do this, and this has been an ongoing conversation. And perhaps that was really the sticking point about why this deal failed, because the two sides realized we were going to reach an impasse. Les Moonves didn't want to do the deal, and that's why this thing fell apart. You know, can I just say really quickly, it seems like the market is viewing this as a negative for both companies. Is it? Well, it's certainly a negative for Viacom in the short term, because I think a lot of people do not, uh, investors do not really have a lot of faith in Viacom's uh, go-alone plan. Viacom is a mess right now. So it's going to need to be a complete turnaround story. Now, they do have a new CEO, Bob uh, Backish, yeah. who's replacing Philippe He's a veteran, Delmon. right? I mean, he's been there 19 years. Absolutely. So he's been with the company. So that may or may not uh, give you faith uh, exactly. Um, but at least he is aware of the fact uh, that Viacom needs to do some drastic retooling. They have a whole bunch of networks that they own that are very much underperforming. Netflix has really cut into the affiliate fees they get paid from other pay TV providers for their crown jewels of MTV, Nickelodeon, you know, Comedy Central, etc. Um, so that's why I think Viacom shares are falling. CBS needs scale. So the question now for CBS will be, is there someone else that CBS can potentially merge with? Is Sherry Redstone even willing to consider a merger with another company? Because again, she's going to want control, theoretically, of CBS. So that's why CBS is falling. Alex, I wonder if you could explain that if Sherry Redstone, through National Amusements, has a controlling stake in both Viacom and CBS, can't she just say to the board of CBS, this is what we're going to do, this is what I want to do, and if you don't like it, we'll get someone else who will? She can, but I think she risks losing Les Moonves if she does He's that. He's that key to the whole Program. And I think Les Moonves is seen in the broader media industry as the gold standard of CEOs. He has, when Viacom and CBS split back in 2006, because they were the same company, when they split, Viacom was seen as the crown jewel and CBS was seen as sort of the dregs because CBS had this underperforming broadcast network, which didn't collect any of these affiliate fees at the time in 2006. Uh, and they also had Showtime. CBS has upended this whole uh, the way the whole economic model works by basically saying, and by the way, all the broadcast channels did this: ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS. They said we should be paid like the cable channels are. We're part of your cable bundle, and we have NFL football and all these hit primetime shows. And Les Moonves has done a great job of keeping CBS number one season after season after season in entertainment. Right. So the combination of sports getting these affiliate fees, starting to get paid like a high-priced cable channel. Two or three dollars per month per pay TV uh, d distributor, which is right up there with some of the best cable channels. He has turned around CBS at the same time 
Viacom has really suffered under Philippe Delmont. So the whole thing got right. tilted in 10 years. You know, I got to say, I'm kind of confused because Time Warner and Disney shares are down, and I would think that they would be up. Real quick, does this make you sense? You know what else is down, which has really got my attention? 21st Century Fox. They made this deal last year to buy this, last week, I should say. Sky to buy the, Exactly. To buy the shares of the UK uh, satellite uh, programmer Sky that they didn't already own. And Fox is down 5.5% today in the wake of that agreement. So, so go figure. Dave Wilson, Alex Sherman, Bloomberg News. Imagine a world in which President-elect Donald Trump does not adhere to the one China uh, provision that has really guided relations between the U.S. and China, and frankly, China and the rest of the world uh, for the past few decades. I want to bring in Patrick Shavanek, uh, chief strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management, uh, to sort of break down what the significance of this is. So, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first, let's start with what's at stake with respect to honoring this one China policy? So the one China policy was established uh, between Mao and Nixon when he went to China in the early 1970s. And it really laid the foundation for the opening uh, between China and the United States. And it's been the foundation for the relationship ever since. And it basically says that the United States throughout the Cold War backed the Republic of China on Taiwan, uh, which had fled to Taiwan after the communist takeover. And uh, the U.S. wanted to continue to do that, but China didn't want the U.S. to recognize, uh, basically recognize that as the government of China. So, so they kind of agreed to disagree, and they said, uh, "There's one China. The United States won't recognize an independent Taiwan, but it, but the differences between Taiwan and China had to be resolved peacefully." Now, the deal between China and the United States doesn't take into account a trade war between the two nations, and that is also something that uh, President-elect Donald Trump uh, has uh, at least sparked debate about. I wonder if you could bring that into there. Is it going to be a quid pro quo on Taiwan and trade? That, well, that is exactly what uh, the president-elect raised uh, explicitly in his interview over the weekend. He said, uh, we won't necessarily adhere to the one China policy unless China makes a deal with us. Uh, and uh, that raises all kinds of questions because for the past week after the Taiwan call, um, all of his surrogates, including the vice president-elect, have been saying that the call did not change the U.S. commitment to the one China policy. And now Trump has raised the prospect that it does. And it, and, it, and it really is kind of a, at least China will see it as a dagger to the heart because because this is something that even just in the past 24 hours, the Chinese state media has come out and said, this is absolutely non-negotiable. And it's the foundation of the relationship. And we have nothing to talk about with the United States uh, if they're going to go down this path. So how could China potentially retaliate for the U.S. rejecting the one China policy. Oh, it's, you know, it, it's so uh, disheartening uh, to start thinking about the deterioration in relationship that could take place um, if, you know, if, if this intensifies. Um, there's any number of ways that the relationship could break down. And, and you know, maybe Trump's defenders will say, well, this is, this is hardball. This is uh, brinksmanship. But it's, it's certainly um, the most intense kind of brinksmanship that you can imagine with China. 
Can you speculate, perhaps, or give us some thoughts on Terry Branstad? He is the uh, governor of Iowa, and he has been nominated uh, to be the ambassador uh, to China, and he's got a relationship with uh, the president, Xi Jinping. Right. He has a relationship going back to when Xi Jinping actually studied in Iowa and also visited Iowa subsequently. Um, You know, the Chinese talk about friends of China, and it's good that there's a relationship there. Uh, I don't think it will change the substance of uh, any of the issues between the United States and China. And ultimately, there's there's one president, and he's going to set the tone uh, for what that relationship is going to be. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be a rocky one. So, Patrick, as an investor, how do you trade on this? It's. Uh, I think the market recently has been sort of blithely ignoring the prospect of trade disruptions. Are they too uh, sanguine been, about it? They've been looking at the upside of you know fiscal stimulus from a Trump administration, uh, and I think they've been sort of brushing aside and saying Trump can't possibly mean what he says when it comes to trade, uh, because that would be too disruptive. And I, I have all along taken him very seriously uh, when he talks about trade, uh, and and because. Ever since the 1980s, uh, Trump has had a very consistent line in saying that trade is not good for the United States, that the U.S. loses from trade. And so uh, I wouldn't, I'm not at all surprised that he's taking a very hard line on it. What's interesting about this, though, is that it has this added component of geopolitical risk that's being added on top of it in an attempt to gain leverage on China. Right. So, Patrick, if you're right, or let's say somebody wants to execute a trade based on the view uh, that, that President-elect Trump is very serious and there could be some sort of escalating trade uh, scuffle between the U.S. and China, how could somebody play that? Well, I think you've got to look at countries, uh, companies that are exposed to China, um, which have a lot of their uh, uh, a lot of the revenues or a lot of their profits from China, uh, major U.S. exporters, because this like who? this trade policy. Well, you know, he already tweeted about Boeing. <laughs> uh, there's Caterpillar. There's a whole host of other company, companies in the United States that that have uh, uh, China as a major part of their market. And so, any kind of breakdown in relationship or tension over that relationship is going to cast a shadow over over their outlook. The Boston Consulting Group predicts that China is, that the consumer market in China is going to reach at least six and a half trillion dollars by 2020. That's got to be at least potentially positive for American companies, right? Like retailers, Macy's, Costco, Target. Don't they want to bet on that Chinese middle class? It's potentially huge, um, but a couple things need to happen. The Chinese need to uh, dissave. They need to encourage the Chinese consumer, and I would argue by keeping the renminbi strong uh, is one thing that they can do to to accomplish that. The second thing is that they need to open their markets. They need to be persuaded that opening their markets is not bad for them. It's actually good for them. Uh, So some rebalancing needs to take place in the relationship between China and the United States. The question is, what are the tools that the U.S. can use to constructively bring China to the table on that. Patrick, what are you looking for specifically that could be uh, the one uh, straw too far that means that the relations cannot be repaired between U.S. and China? I think the danger here is conflicting or mixed signals. You know, it's one thing to change policy. It's another thing, which is what's happened over the past week, to say we're not changing the policy, then say we are changing the policy, especially on something that's very crucial to China. So you don't want to get into such a situation where other countries, China, other, lots of other countries, Japan, Taiwan, are questioning what the U, what the real U.S. policy is and where the real red lines are, because that could lead to a serious miscalculation. 
Thank you very much for spending time with us. Patrick Chavonik, he is the Managing Director, Chief Strategist, Silvercrest Asset Management. Oil prices on a tear up uh, more than double where they were in February. Can this last? I want to bring in John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital, who has gotten oil right time and time again. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good good morning. Good morning. So uh, almost good afternoon. Not quite yet. (laughs) We're getting there. Uh, John, what's your take on this latest leg up in oil prices in Saudi Arabia's plan to cut more than they originally agreed to? Do you think that this is actually going to happen and this will last? Yeah, that um, that bit of a throwdown over the weekend in the aftermath of the meeting by the Saudi oil minister, I I think, punctuated uh, the sort of change in, in viewpoint and, and actions of, you know, by the kingdom. Um, they have really, uh, you know, buckled down here and, and, and given up quite a bit to, to make this deal happen. And um, basically nothing was required of Iran, for example, uh, to come along here. And even Russian production was fully accommodated in, in the hopes of, of getting some kind of stabilization that the Saudis desperately want and need. So, um, and I think the market has reacted uh, appropriately to this sea change. Uh, the question is, there's a lot of moving parts in this market now more than ever before that's going to uh, you know, make the upcoming months here, I think, quite volatile. Well, give us a, give us a little window onto this, uh, if you can, Sean. I mean, I think from oil independence in the United States, a potential tweet from the president-elect and $53 for a barrel of oil. Yeah, and, and and while it's a terrific you know rally off the recent lows, we got as low as forty two twenty back in November. Um, you know, ten bucks is ten bucks for sure. Uh, but you know, that's it's not it's not really all that terrific of a reward if you if you think about it from a longer term perspective. When we were you know at a hundred uh, a couple of years ago, um, but the problem the Saudis are going to have now is that, uh, and we're already seeing it, is the resurgence in, in U.S. shale production. Uh, which kicked off this whole uh, this whole phase we've been in of low oil prices when the Saudis uh, oversupplied the market uh, in order to break the back, or, or, or they thought they could be able to break the back of the shale producers, but they ended up appears uh, breaking their own back as much as anybody else's. Uh, so that's going to be a problem for them. And also, too, compliance is a problem. And even just last month, Saudi output rose to a, a, another new record. The levels that ev- all these guys are producing at, all these countries are producing at, is, is, is extraordinary. And there, there's going to be a lot of cutting that has to occur uh, for the production goals to be reached. And to me, it's, it's almost seems unattainable. And certainly given their history of trying to do this, it, it doesn't work out. So right now, oil is about $53 a barrel. In February, it was about $26 a barrel. Where will we be in six months? Well, I, there's, there's likely to be some more uh, upside here. But I think that... Um, as the the details come out, and if what the market's going to punish come January and February is the lack of production cuts if they don't materialize. So I think that it, at the very least here, um, in the short term, in some cold weather, we could probably push upwards of 55, but I don't think we get much more than that. And I think the downside risk uh, remains the greater risk to this market uh, because of uh, things beyond oil supplies. Right. You know, we come into a, a, a 
a demand season that lessens come the spring, and we also have a strong dollar that's going to be contended with here and has to be still priced into this market. Uh, there's been a breakdown in that correlation, and I expect that to come back into the market. So let's say the dollar does strengthen and production cuts uh, aren't as significant as people are expecting. How low could the price go? It's pretty easy to see it get back down towards the recent lows near $40 a barrel, I think, at this point. Uh, that, that's the easy shot. The, the question then becomes, you know, Will the production cuts take hold at all, or does the deal completely fall apart and then the market goes into another uh, deep dive uh, price-wise? Um, that's a bit of an outlier uh, view, and um, I, it's, it's one I think you have to consider. John, uh, Keystone XL, if uh, the president-elect were to uh, indicate his support for Keystone XL and also have Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, and I believe the State Department has to sign off on the deal. Uh, what would that do to oil prices? It should help bring them down as well. Uh, it would un- it'll unleash um, more supplies out of Canada, uh, where the cost of production is, is relatively low. And But more importantly, it'll get that oil really to the Gulf Coast and then out for export. That was one of the criticisms of the pipeline. It wouldn't necessarily serve uh, U.S interest per se, it would, it would really serve the interests of Canadian producers who are trying to outlet their crude to the global market. And uh, we're seeing more and more of, of our own U.S. crude, we're upwards of around 400,000 plus barrels per day that are now being exported. Our shale guys are competing for market share in Asia. And this, uh, this Canadian crude, if we're able to get down here via a new pipeline, would only, would only add to that. And so this is what I mean about this is being – we're in a totally new era in terms of uh, the, the multiple players and, and facets uh, to this market with, with more supply, more right. flexible supplies. And even Saudi Arabia now selling spot, what's called spot or, or, or sort of cash deals rather than their strict contractual terms that they historically dealt with. We got to we got to leave it there. Thank you very much, John Kilduff. He is the founding partner of Again Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.